Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. enter into chapter 3 of this story, and we're going to be introduced to the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh was mentioned in the very first verse of the book. In Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1, God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And that's the last time we heard about Nineveh. And for the past few chapters, we've been kind of the opposite direction of Nineveh. We've been preoccupied, um, as Jonah's been preoccupied, with Jonah. <laughs> and we've been in the ship, and we've been on a storm, and we've been in the belly of a big fish. And But now, as if the author wants to remind us where we're going. The beginning of this whole story was about Nineveh. The first words that we read was, go to Nineveh, and we've not been anywhere near Nineveh. Now, if you're not a Christian and you've not read the book of Jonah, then as far as we know, we have no idea what Nineveh's like. We've not, you know, if we were just introduced to this story, reading it or watching it on film, go to Nineveh, where's Nineveh? But he goes the other direction, gets in the ship, goes on underwater, and then now he gets spit back on the shore and God says, go to Nineveh. Oh yeah, we're going to Nineveh. It's interesting, if you look at um, the two passages side by side, chapter one and chapter three, verse one, they're almost identical. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and then chapter three, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, and what did he say? Both times he said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Arise, go to Nineveh, you know, the same thing. And then the difference is, but Jonah rose to flee, and in chapter three, but Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. So it's almost as if the author is trying to say, just in case you forgot, or Jonah, just in case you forgot, the direction of the story is to Nineveh. And we've had this parenthetical for the past three weeks of being in the fish and being in a storm. Incidentally, it's kind of ironic that everyone knows the story of Jonah. What they know about Jonah is really just the parenthetical. Just God saying, I'm going to deal with Jonah while he's on the boat and while he's in the fish. But now we get back to square one. Okay, back here we are again. We're going to Nineveh. So tonight we get to meet Nineveh. I want to introduce you to Nineveh. And I want to introduce you to the Ninevites. And as we do that, we're going to look at this word, great. You see it both in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, but you also see it throughout the whole book. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but God first says the great city of Nineveh, 
And then Jonah runs, and he sends a great storm. And then we have these sailors, and the sailors have great fear. And then they have exceedingly great fear whenever they find out who Jonah is. And then they have exceedingly, exceedingly great fear when God calms the sea. And then God sends a great fish. And then now God is saying, go to that great city. And then even the narrator of the story takes God's words, go to that great city. And he says it twice. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. So it's just like the sailors, right? They had great fear. And then once they met God, they had exceedingly great fear. And this narrator is saying, this is a great city. And the narrator is saying, it's an exceedingly great city. It's almost as if God's trying to tell us something. God's trying to point to something. And the point that he's making is it's great. So great, great, great is this word that you see a lot in the book. We'll see it some more in chapter four. So tonight, my message is going to have two points. And I don't know if you've been following, but normally I have three points to my message. I'm a three-point message guy. I, I just am. Um, but tonight, we're just going to have two. And it's going to be centered around this word great. The first point is that sin is great. And we're going to see some great sin tonight. The second point is, is that God's grace is greater. That when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's, that's where we're going to go tonight as we go with Jonah into Nineveh. So first, let's talk about great sin. We're going to talk about great sin. Um, now, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit because I might be weird, and that is when I read a story or whenever I'm especially reading the Bible, I can't help but think in cinematic kind of imaginative ways. I don't know about you, but I watch a lot of movies, and so maybe I'm tainted, so whenever I read the Bible, I see it unfolding like a movie. And what I want to do tonight is take us on a journey to Nineveh like a movie, like an epic movie. I want us to go together in this epic place called the great, exceedingly great city of Nineveh. So we've connected with Jonah over the past three weeks. Character development has been really good, right? We are Jonah. We've, we've established that. We, we've begun to like Jonah. We've been through an ordeal with Jonah. So now Jonah is going to walk into Nineveh. And if you've connected with him as the main character, you need to feel yourself walking into Nineveh with Jonah. And so I want to introduce you to Nineveh. So let me try to do that. I'm not Martin Scorsese. I'm not Mel Gibson. But if I were, I would try to like shoot this scene and paint this picture for you that would drive fear into your soul, that would make you feel uncomfortable and icky and, and, and not like the scene. Do you know what I'm saying? As we walked into and met these Ninevites, I would want you to feel uncomfortable. Actually, Mel Gibson does this pretty well in a recent film he produced called The Apocalypto. Anyone seen this movie, Apocalypto? You, you may not have seen it. It's not for everyone. It's kind of creepy. But I, I liked it. It's a, it's a movie about these ancient Indians in South America, and the Mayans are doing human sacrifices. So they go and capture these Indians and bring them to the Mayan city. And so when you enter into the Mayan city with the main character, his name's Jaguar Paul. When you enter into Mayan city with Jaguar Paul, you begin to immediately feel the walls caving in on you, and it is creepy. I mean, the first thing you see is these weird people. These people look even weirder than the, uh, the other Indians do. They have bones in their nose. They have bones in their face. They have bones in their ears. They have tattoos all over their body. And these weird priestesses are like dancing and, 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 and doing weird things in the street and, and, and excited when they see these human sacrifices being paraded in. These little temple priests come up and start painting blue paint all over Jaguar Paul and his, his associates. 
And as you enter into this scene with the main character, I felt both creeped out because these people are weird and scary. I felt trapped because how in the world are you ever going to get out of here now? And I also felt like um, amazed at the grandness of the whole thing. These giant Mayan ruins and temples, these big old pyramids, the thousands of people. And Tiger Paul gets led up to the top of the Mayan temple. And as he's being led up to this pyramid, um, these creepy high priests are up there and they're cutting people's heads off. And those heads are rolling down the temple and they're creating these human sacrifices to their sun god. And Tiger Paul is next. And you just wonder, how is he ever going to get out of here? It's just probably for me one of the creepiest scenes I've ever seen. Now, maybe you've never seen Apocalypto, but you can imagine a creepy scene like that. I've got another one. Gangster movies. Have you ever seen a gangster movie? Like gangster movies always do this scene, like where the main character is like an innocent guy or maybe even an innocent girl, and she gets thrusted into the dark underworld of this notorious violent gang, and she's surrounded by big psychopathic gangsters with white wife beater tank tops on, and they're playing carelessly with loaded weapons, and they got that stink eye on you. Have you ever seen a film? I mean, I, I've seen probably 12 movies with that same scene. You're like, oh man, someone's going to get shot. She's not going to make it out alive. My wife were watching that film with me. That would be when she starts to crawl up the back of the couch and she's squeezing the color out of my hands. It's a thriller. It's thrilling. And that's what I want us to feel when we enter into Nineveh, that exceedingly great city. Because the Ninevites were the nastiest, meanest, roughest people on the planet. Nineveh is actually the capital of Assyria. And if you know anything about Assyrians in, in world history, they were mean. They were known, famous for their brutality and their, and their cruelty. I mean, we have both historical, we, have, we know a lot about the Ninevites because they were the capital of Assyria. And so we know a lot historically about them. We know that they were famous for genocide. They would kill entire nations, and they would do it in cruel ways. They would lead them through death marches. And they had this knack for torture. They would literally skin people alive and then tie them to a pole and let them die a slow and gruesome death. They, literally, they'd skin people alive. They were mean when I read this story, walking into Nineveh with Jonah, <sighs> these are mean and weird people. We also know a little bit about Nineveh from the Bible. The, the Bible doesn't just mention Nineveh in the book of Jonah. It mentions it several times. In fact, one of the prophets, his name's Nahum, he, he talks about Nineveh. And, and, and I want to read this for you. Listen to what he says about Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city. He calls it the city of blood. Who wants to go to the city of blood? It's not on my destination list, I'll tell you that. The city of blood, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and deadly charms, woe betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Ugh, 
just reading that paragraph kind of makes me feel icky. Anybody have any hand sanitizer? I just feel like I need to clean myself. And Nahum paints this picture well. He says, they're filled with lies and thieving and robbering. Robbering? Robbing. <laughs> and, then he, and then he paints the picture of their violence. I mean, they, they, bodies are stacked on top of each other. Heads. I, I just can imagine Jonah, when he's walking through Nineveh, has to kind of like step over, you know, blood puddles and crime scene chalk lines or something. This is a dark place. And then Nahum uses this word, and it's not a very fun word. It's the, that, that word that starts with the W. Most of us in this room probably cringe at just hearing it. Don't be mad at me. It's in, it's in the Bible. I'm not, I'm not going to say it anymore. But, but Nahum says it more than twice in, in, in the original language, and he says it with force. They're nasty whorings. So they're this sexually devious country that mixes that deviations with witchcraft, the charm and the, and the graceful charms that are sucking people into this place. So American evangelical, I want to introduce you to the Ninevites. You can check in anytime you want, <laughs> but you can never leave. <laughs> <laughs> now, you need to think about it. God couldn't have sent Jonah to any worse place. It's the biggest sinful place on the, you know, now that I think about it a little bit, that sounds wrong. When I, maybe I should check that. Maybe we should take that off because is it really the worst place? Are there worser places that God could have sent a prophet? It's interesting to me that God says almost the same things about Israel in the book of Isaiah. You might have known this already. In Isaiah chapters one through five, God is just ripping on Israel saying, here's why I'm mad at you. And, and the first thing he says they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasure. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. The daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along with their toes and tinkling with their feet. I mean, God's angry with Israel. And so sin is great. Sin is great in Nineveh, but sin is also great in Israel. And I don't know how you're going to feel about what I'm going to say next, but sin is great right here too. And, and in all reality, we're not much different than Nineveh at all or Israel. Now, I need you to understand what I'm saying because I want you to know what I'm not saying and what I am saying. So let me first say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying this. I'm not saying well, all sin is offensive to God, and therefore your sin, which might be cheating on your taxes and um, ducking certain responsibilities in the church, is equal, therefore, to the sins of Nineveh who skin people alive and they whore around like Charlie Sheen. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying all sins are equal in God's eyes, and therefore your little sin is just as bad as their big sin. Because I don't even really believe that. That, when people say things like that, it kind of repulses me, actually. Because we don't really believe that when I steal a paperclip from my office 
It's the same thing as committing adultery on my wife or murdering the next guy who cuts me off on Highway 70, right? We don't believe that. So that's not what I'm saying. Although all sin is offensive to God, I'm not saying that your sin is just like Nineveh's sin because your sin is just as offensive to God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that your sin is just as bad as Nineveh's because, and this is what I think the Bible says, and I'm pretty sure that Jesus said it once on a sermon on top of a mountain, and it goes like this, because you are a murderer, because you are an adulterer, because you are a thieving, lying, dirty sack of sinfulness. And that's just the truth. Not because your paperclip stealing is equal in God's eyes to their man-skinning aliveness, because you are a murderer. Sin is great. And I don't think that we really believe that. You know, another thing God says to Isaiah, I love the book of Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah chapter 1 he says this to them, when you spread out your hands to pray to me, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'll not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. It's interesting because if you know anything about, for instance, this story, Israel doesn't have blood on their hands. They're not a violent city. They're actually very small and they're very afraid. And they're surrounded by Assyria and Babylon and the Philistines and the Egyptians. And so they're not out there killing all these guys and, and, and growing their boundaries. They're actually kind of just kind of hunkering down and trying to make sure everything's okay. So why does God say, you've got blood on your hands? Well, God says in throughout the book of Isaiah and even in this verse, because they're guilty by association they, they've, they've associated with themselves with murderers because they're guilty because they love money and because they love the work of their own hands. They're guilty because they worship idols. They're guilty because they do not take care of the poor. They do not take care of the needy. They do not take care of the fatherless. And they do not take care of the widow. And incidentally, because of all of that, they are murderers and they are liars and they are adulterers. And God even calls them the same thing that Nahum calls, you know, Ninevites, the prostitutes. They're, they're running around with other gods. So they're guilty, guilty. Sin is great. Can I get an amen? Our sin is great, and here's what I think. I think that we tend, like Jonah, to downplay our own sin and upplay everyone else's sin. And when we do that, what we don't realize we're doing is we're also downplaying God's grace. If sin is great and grace is greater, then the smaller your sin, the smaller his grace. But if we can really truly recognize how sinful we really are, then we will recognize how much grace we've really been given. I think that's why Jesus commands us to take communion as often as we gather. Because when we gather to take communion every week, we have something to confess. I don't know about you, but I got a lot to confess this week. I'm just being honest. Sin is great. Now, let me just say this as an announcement to, to, to the congregation. 
Um, what we normally do is we have these little conversations in our circle and talk about stuff. And, and um, we started off in chapter one being kind of light, you know, woo, you know, the, the whale or whatever. I forgot our questions, to be honest with you. Last week, we kind of started getting deeper, started talking about death and funerals. This week, I'm just going to be honest with you, we're going to get deeper. And I think we should, right? I mean, we're, we're four weeks into this series. We're almost done. I mean, we should be escalating getting deeper, whatever. We should be doing, you know, we should be getting deeper. So for visitors, I want you to know we're not normally this heavy, but tonight we just are going to be heavy. And I want to ask a question, and the question is this. How's the church? In other words, we're going we're gonna to talk about individual sin later, but for right now, let's just talk about the church. American evangelical Christianity, how are we doing? Are we a repentant people? Do we really see ourselves as sinners in need of grace? Or are we like Jonah, downplaying our own sinfulness? Are we like Israel, having bloody hands and then upplaying everyone else's sinfulness? And so this question is going to be kind of deep, I think. How's the church doing? How are we, American evangelical Christians, in need of deep, genuine repentance? You have three minutes. So there is a lot of sin, and I think the Bible is showing us, and, and the Bible teaches us over and over and over again, Paul says it's a mirror to show you your sin, that sin is great. But the second thing we're going to learn tonight is that grace is greater, that where sin abounds, grace abounds, you guys can finish that verse, right, all the more. There's this hymn, I don't know if you've heard it before, it goes, sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. I just love that hymn. God's grace is great. And it really gets exhibited in this story in the fact that he is going to forgive the wicked and nasty Ninevites. Or maybe what I should say is he's already forgiven the wicked and nasty Jonah. It's interesting. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach the message that I give you. And the message that God gives Jonah it doesn't have to be long. <laughs> it doesn't have to have illustrations and quotes from scholars like the message you're listening to now. God's message can be five words long. In the original Hebrew, it's five words long, and that's enough. Incidentally, as a side note, I think everything that I've ever heard from God has been like five words long. You know, like He normally just gives me one sentence, and it's powerfully succinct. Maybe you've heard people say, well, the Lord said to me, or I heard the Lord say such and such. And I don't know what that looks like for people, honestly. I do know what it looks like for me, and it's always been like a one-liner, a little zinger. I don't have long, audible conversations with the Almighty. I don't know anyone who does. That would be weird. Honestly, most of the time, it's just me doing all the talking. And then until he just kind of throws this one-liner in there, boom, and it hurts. And it usually shuts me right up. You know, I'll be like, la, 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 talking to God. And he's like, yeah, what about that, Mike? Huh? Huh? What, what did you say? What about that? And then he's gone. Hello? Did you say what about that? What about what? Oh, that. 
And then I just go on with this normal, like, one-sided conversation again because all he needed was just enough. If you think about it, he created the universe with words, and he's going to turn the hearts of these wicked, nasty killers with just five. So God's message is awesome. So here's his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Nineveh will be destroyed. Basically, he's saying, you got 40 days and you're done. And what amazes me is the next line in, 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 your, in your Bible says, and they believed God. And I don't know how they did. I, I know how they did. It tells me that God's been there already and he's working things out. And that's a different sermon. I could go on for days about that. God is there first. The Holy Spirit is first. Then we show up with our, you know, one-liner that we turn into nine-liners that they don't even hear anyway. They just hear the one line that God gave us. They heard the message and they believed God. And I'm wondering, how could they believe? If I were an Assyrian, I'd be like, who's going to overthrow us? We're on the top of our game. We skin people alive. Everyone's afraid of us. No one's coming to get us. We're on the top of the food chain. But that's not what they said. They said, hmm, God probably is mad at us. We probably do deserve to die. He probably means what he says. And then they turn from their wicked ways, which is powerful. That's powerful stuff. They turn from their wicked ways, they fast, and they pray. And I'm thinking that they're thinking, okay, so God probably is going to get us, but what's up with these 40 days? If God's going to give us 40 days, he must be giving us 40 days for something. Maybe he wants us to pray. Maybe if we fast, if we pray, if we relent, if we repent, maybe, who knows, he might see us and change his mind. He might, he might turn from his fierce anger and not destroy us. That's what they say literally. And you know what? They're onto something there. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he'll change his mind. It's interesting. It's the same exact thing that the sailors say in chapter one. Remember, they pull him out of the, the bottom of the boat and say, pray to your God, because who knows? Maybe the God will hear our prayers and save us, and God does. It's almost as if there's a point trying to be made here. Twice you hear these sinners say, who knows? Maybe he'll change his mind. I think there is a point being made, don't you? In fact, if I can kind of give you a spoiler, in chapter four, Jonah's going to tell us, this is the reason why I didn't go to Nineveh, because I knew that you would preach to them and they would repent and you would forgive them. So it's almost as if the storyteller of this story is saying, God is gracious. He's abounding in love. He's slow to anger. And if you call out to him, who knows? He might save you. Everyone in this story is counting on that fact. The sailors are counting on the fact God's going to save us if we call out. The Ninevites are counting on the fact maybe he'll save us. Jonah's counting on the fact maybe he'll get me out of here, of this whale. I would argue that everyone on the face of this planet is counting on that fact. When the bottom falls out, when you're at the end of your rope, you'll say things like, who knows? Maybe he is up there. Maybe he does see my need. Maybe he will hear me. Lord, if you're there, please. Save me. That's really the only thing we have. We're all counting on that. You can't count on anything else. Nothing else will save you. Only God can save you. 
Because God is gracious and he's full of love and he's full of kindness and he's abounding in love. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now, I need to also say this. God is gracious, but he's also just. And what that means is he cannot let sin just slide. God can't just let sin slide. Because if he did, he wouldn't be just. He'd be a pushover. He wouldn't be loving. He'd be unfair. And so that's why God's message to the Ninevites is doom and gloom. 40 days and you're done because I'm just and you deserve to die. But yet still, they're counting on his grace. What are you going to do if you're a sinner and you have to pay for that sin? The only thing you can do is count on his grace. Because there's another time when God sends a message, for instance, and God's word that comes then is not five words of doom and gloom, but the Bible says the word takes on flesh, and it was full of grace and truth. And so God sent his son, Jesus, who was the word that became flesh, and we saw his glory. He walked with us. God's message was in the person of Jesus, and John says, and he was full of grace and truth. And as we beheld him, we received from him grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, which is how that could be translated. God is full of grace. And if you're a sinner here tonight, and you are, it's great. I want you to know it's great. You need to call out to God for forgiveness, and you need to know he will forgive you, just like that. That grace is yours for the asking. Call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you'll be saved. The sailors did it. Ninevites did it. Will you do it? Call out to the Lord and you'll be saved. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, the bridge of grace will bear your weight. And if you're with me in the first point of the message, your sin is great. It weighs a lot. But the bridge of grace can bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. Some have been the chief of sinners. And some have come at it the very last of their days. But the arch has never yielded beneath all of that weight. Spurgeon says, I'll go with them, trusting in that same support. It will bear me over as it has for them. And I want you to know it will bear your weight too. The bridge of God's grace is enough. Where your sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. That's what the gospel is. That Jesus died for your sins so that you won't have to. He's not a pushover. Someone else paid for it for you. Now, for the rest of us in the room, we've already received that grace. And maybe as I'm preaching and saying some of these verses like, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, or, and we receive from him grace and truth and grace and upon grace upon grace, maybe you're nodding your head and maybe you're giving the hearty amen. But can I say, I don't know if we really get it. Honestly, we say we believe in the gospel. We say we believe in God's grace, but I say we can hardly believe it because we barely get it. We barely get the gospel. We barely get God's grace because it's so deep. It's so deep. It's so great. And if you disagree with me, you just prove my point. You don't get it. 
I'll give you an example. Jonah understood God's grace. He said, I knew you would give the wicked Assyrians grace, but Jonah doesn't get it at all. He completely misses it. Another good example would be the story of the prodigal son. Remember, the young son goes out and he comes back and he gets grace. And the old son, who knows God, his father's grace, doesn't get it. And he's angry and he misses it. I think that we as Christians have been trained. We've learned to downplay our own sin. And when we downplay our own sin, we are by default downplaying God's grace. But when our sins are small, God is very small in grace. But when we remember how daily we are evil, then God's grace is daily great in our lives. Are we a repentant people who are filled with God's grace and therefore very gracious to those who need grace? Or are we a non-repentant people who assume God's grace and we essentially don't give people grace? Are we like Jonah or are we like the sailors? Are we like Jonah or are we like the Ninevites? Are we like the older son or the younger son? Are we like the Pharisees or the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It's interesting to me that in the Bible, it's always those who know how great their sin is, that they feel the greatness of God's grace, and then they're on their knees, and then they're worshiping, and then they're moving for God's great mission, which we'll cover next week. If we don't downplay our own sin, but we upplay our sin, then we can upplay God's grace, and then we can be more gracious. And so our prayer should sound more like, our brother, A.W. Tozer, man, he's an amazing man of God. Listen to his prayer. Oh, God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me, and it has made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire, oh, God, to try you and God. I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy, which I hear in that. Be gentle with me. <laughs> Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered for so long. If we don't downplay our sin and say, well, it's just that. I'm not as bad as those guys. But we really recognize how wicked we are, then God's grace becomes awesome. I believe the church needs to say, I long to long for you. And I thirst to thirst for you. And I need to know more and more every day just how much grace I still need further grace. We are so arrogant. I think we are. So what we're going to do for the next 15 minutes is I've programmed the next slide to have four very inspirational, quiet hymns. And during that time, you shouldn't be distracted by anything. And what I'd like for us to do is to just to get up as you feel led. 
like I said, there's three, there's three corners in this room here. They all have the same setup. If we could move this setup. They all have the same setup. It has a cup of, of, of juice and, and some bread. You would just take a piece of that bread, dip it into the juice. It's called intinction and take it. It's the body and the blood of Christ that was shed for you. There's a Bible verse there about confessing our sins to God. There's also a candle there. <laughs> just so you'll know what you're getting into when you walk in that room. There's a couple of chairs, and there's a couple of pillows. If you want to sit at the chair, you can sit at the chair. If you need to get on your knees like I need to get on my knees, then you can take a knee. You can, if you want, just stay at your table. If you feel uncomfortable getting up, that's fine. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. I want you to feel free to go into a private area of this place and pray to God. You have 13 minutes of music to do that. Just confess your sins. For some of us, you need more than 13 minutes. I know I do. Father in heaven, you are an amazing God. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and I often wonder if we don't fear you. You sent a great storm, and the sailors feared you. You sent a great fish, and Jonah began to fear you. Lord, we need to fear you. I need to fear you. I need to know that you are hurt by my sinfulness. I need to know that you are angry by my sinfulness. I need to know that my sin is great, just as great as the Ninevites, just as great as Jonah's, maybe even greater. And I need to confess these sins to you, and I pray that right now as we begin to move into these places, that you'll let us confess our sins to you honestly and for real. And that they wouldn't just be a time where we kind of take communion and, and give it to you, but it would be a time in which we would really recognize the greatness of it and that you would take it from us. And then I also pray, Lord, that as you work in us individually tonight, you will also begin to work in us corporately as a church and that our church, that this church, that Missio Dei and the churches in our neighborhood will begin to repent openly to those sinners, those lost folks out there who have no idea that you are a God of mercy and grace because we've painted a picture of you that's false. So I ask all these things in Jesus' name, who died on the cross for our sin so that we may be given grace upon grace.